If you would, turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're newer to church or to Christianity, you may wonder why there was so much mention of blood. I mean, we sang about it, talked about it, took a Lord's Supper meant to picture it. Maybe you thought Christianity was about uh, uh, renovating your life, you know, uh, getting rid of some, some bad habits and putting on some better ones, doing better now than you used to. Isn't that what becoming a Christian is? I'm going to try harder now. Well, actually, no. Uh, blood is significant because God, throughout the entire Old Testament, ordained that the blood of sacrifice would atone for sin. And when Jesus Christ came, His blood shed on the cross was the full and final sacrifice for sin. So we use this poetic language of a fountain filled with blood, being plunged beneath it, being washed by it. Not because those are literal images, but because that is a picture of what God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, in some sense, I guess you could say that Christianity is a bloody business. It is a bloody faith. But rather than our blood be shed, the Lord Jesus shed His blood for us. And so, we thank Him for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew and don't quite know how to navigate that, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is on page 954 of that Bible. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'll read the first 11 verses, and then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding them, and then we'll begin. Let's read together. Beginning in verse 1, this is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Our Father, now we come to your word to hear your voice through your servant. We pray that your truth would ring clearly in our ears and in our hearts. And that we, your people, would receive it as food for our souls. That we would hear it, that we would heed it, and live differently because of it. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored as your word is proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2004, on Good Friday, my friend Ridley and his family were on their way home from vacation. And on their way home, they were in a tragic car accident in which his wife, Sarah Ellen, died almost immediately. His youngest son, youngest of three, Josh, was taken to one hospital and then taken by helicopter to another because his condition was critical. Now, Josh progressed for the first few days until day five. On day five, a pharmacist who had 25 years of experience in her field made a mistake and dispensed an adult dose of an anti-seizure medication to be given to this 18-month-old boy, five times what he should have received. The results of that were irreversible, and Josh died. On the way home from the hospital that afternoon, Ridley was asked this question, what do you want to do about this? Do you want to take legal action? Well, it seems like a question that to many of us has an obvious answer. Someone has to pay for the wrong that's been done. And suing is the civilized way to do that. Well, Ridley considered a number of factors, and he decided not to sue. He wouldn't sue the hospital, and he wouldn't sue the pharmacist. In fact, he intentionally forgave the pharmacist. Now, friends, Ridley was wronged, accidentally understood, but wronged all the same, and he made an unexpected decision, a decision that not many would make or understand or maybe even agree with. The city in which these Corinthians who are receiving this letter, the citizens of that city wouldn't understand either. If you ask them, what do you want to do, they would say, go to court. The courts in ancient Greece 
were, played a huge part in society. People loved to actually go and just watch. Or you could go uh, and you, you could try to get on the jury, a jury made up of hundreds of people. And you would listen to these citizens, not lawyers, you would listen to citizens make their case and then you would vote for whoever you thought should win. It was kind of like Judge Judy without the crassness and with audience participation. It was exciting. It was entertaining. But when you're wronged, you go to court. It's, it's what you do. And here in these verses, Paul is not surprised that there are grievances or disputes in the church. He's not even surprised that Christians are being wronged by other Christians, as sad as that may be. What he's surprised about is that they're responding with Corinthian wisdom, worldly wisdom. They're going to court rather than going to godly wisdom to settle these issues. And so his message in these, in these verses is that when, when you're wronged, respond with godly wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Respond with godly wisdom when you're wronged. Not with worldly wisdom. So he says, don't respond with worldly wisdom. Now, Corinthians love their wisdom. They love their philosophers. They, and the church in Corinth buys in. The church is smitten with wisdom. Like a middle school boy, once that girl smiled at him. I mean, they can't even think straight. The world and its wisdom has winked at the church in Corinth, and they love every bit of it. And they are for it. And they can't think straight. And they can't think straight when it comes to these grievances. Now, Paul doesn't say what they are, but they're not criminal. These aren't criminal offenses. He calls them, in verse 2, trivial cases, ordinary things. Now, they may not feel trivial to the one who's wronged, right? Is that ever your first response when you're wronged? Is your first response, well, you know, this kind of thing happens. People run into other people's cars all the time. People break grandma's urn all the time. That's not what happens. You know when you do think that? When you're the one who did it. Hey, this is, this is just something that happens. But that's what he's saying. These aren't... These aren't other kind, these aren't criminal kinds of things. They're everyday kinds of things. But people are genuinely wronged, and there may be financial loss, and there may be injury, but still they are ordinary. They are trivial. And Paul says, when you're wronged, even in that way, don't respond with worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom would take the Christian who wronged you to court. Worldly wisdom would try to get them back, make them pay. Now, why would he say that? Well, he actually shows us why. He shows us that it's a foolish decision. Look at verse 1. 
when you are when one of you has a grievance against another does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints just that phrase does he dare are you so arrogant that you would respond this way are you so presumptuous that you would respond this way this is foolish it's not foolish because the courts are corrupt you understand it's not foolish because there's no justice in the court system. God ordains courts as part of society. However, however, it's a foolish decision because at heart, grievances, wronging one another, is actually a spiritual matter first. It's not primarily physical. It's not primarily financial. It's not even primarily legal. We had a man show up one day who, uh, who said he needed help. And he needed help because he had come home and he found his wife with another man. And he proceeded to physically assault that man wail on him. And some of you in your minds are going, yep, that's exactly what I would do. I would do that same thing. I walk in, that guy's getting it. But he came to us for help. And in reality, he had actually broken the law. It's against the law to go in and assault someone like that. But breaking the law wasn't the biggest problem in the room. Society's law was not the biggest problem in the room. You see, underneath every wrong done to you and underneath every wrong done by you is a spiritual wrong. And because that is true, particularly among Christians. Paul says spiritual wrongs require spiritual wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Look at verse 5. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? Do you realize how much that would dig into the Corinthians? They think they are really wise people. They love wisdom. And Paul's looking at him and saying, you don't have anybody who's wise enough to settle this dispute? How can you go to court and hand over spiritual matters to people who only have worldly wisdom? That's what he's saying to them. He's already said in chapter 3 that the wisdom of this world is folly before God. It's a foolish decision. It's also a no-win situation. Look at verse 7. What's the goal of filing a lawsuit? Win, right? That's the goal. You don't file a lawsuit to lose. You don't hire a lawyer and pay the fees to lose. You go to court to win. But, Paul says, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You see, when you take your brother to court, when you take your sister to court, winning, Paul says, is an impossibility. You may 
win the repair of your property. You may win the replacement of your property. You may win the money for the medical bills. You may win a sense of knowing that you were right. But Paul says you lose. The moment the paperwork is filed, the moment you step into the arena of the court with this, you've lost. What's lost? Well, your Christian witness is lost. Not just as individuals, but as a church. I mean, think about what's happening in this case where a Christian goes to court against another Christian over one of these trivial matters, over one of these grievances. You have one who's trying to avenge self because I've been wronged and somebody needs to pay. And you're the somebody. And on the other side, you have somebody who's defending self. This, I shouldn't have to pay for this. You have one avenging self. You have one defending self. You know what nobody's doing? Denying self. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, my guess is right about now, your arm is just instinctively wanting to go up because you have a whole list of exceptions you'd like to bring to the table. Well, let me just tell you, Paul doesn't deal with any exceptions. He lays down the rule. So I'm just going to follow Paul here. Let me tell you what, if you get this rule in your heart, then even if you think you have an exception, you can better deal with it. Okay? But you have an avenger of self, a defender of self, and no deniers of self when Christians go to court against one another. So not only is the individual witness harmed, the church's witness is harmed. The church's unity is fractured. This is actually what Jesus prayed for before he went to the cross. Remember that? In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for the unity of his people. Why? so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church is meant to be a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. And to go public with something that ought to be kept within the family and handled there is not the testimony that we are to give to the world. We are to handle it. We are not to ignore it. Now, we'll get to there. We don't ignore it, but we don't go to court over it. You see, going to court isn't a step toward victory. It's a step into defeat. It's a no-win situation. It's a foolish decision. It's a no-win situation. And actually, it's even worse than all that because it's the path to destruction. Verse 7. Let's just keep reading where we picked up. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you're just reading through that in your daily Bible time, you may think Paul has suddenly changed direction from verse 8 to verse 9. Like he finished that paragraph, he set this down, and then he came back and he kind of glanced over the page and he saw a couple of do, do you not knows and he saw the word unrighteous and he's like, I know what I'll talk about next. That's not actually what's happening. 
Because if you look, just put your finger on the page of your Bible and find the little phrase, suffer wrong, in verse 7. And then go to wrong in verse 8. And then go to unrighteous in verse 9. These are all related words in the Greek language. So it would be like he's saying, why not rather suffer wrong being done to you? But you wrong, you do wrong. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, those who wrong others in response to being wronged by going to court, by looking to worldly wisdom, they forfeit the kingdom of God. This is not behavior that conforms to the kingdom. These are the kind of folks that don't make it to, ha- to heaven. I mean, you just you think about that. You think, well, I can avoid murder, yeah. Well, here, you want to know when the hardest time is not to sin? It's not when you just have two choices and you're going to go forward. It's when something has been done to you. If you respond by wronging others because they have wronged you, that is the spirit of going to court. Paul Tripp says that sinners tend to sin when sinned against. That is the most dangerous time. You want to know when your greatest temptation is? It is often when you have been sinned against, not because two things are laid out in front of you. It's when you have been sinned against because what is your instinct? What do you do when you stub your toe on the wall? You punch it. That's your instinct. But Paul says, this is not kingdom behavior. This is not the behavior of those who can know they are on their way to heaven. And if that wasn't serious enough, you know what he does? He says, let me, just, let me just make a list for you. Here are some other folks who forfeit the kingdom. The sexually immoral, which is a very general word for all kinds of sexual sin. Idolaters. Those who give themselves in devotion and in worship to things other than God. Adulterers, those who break the sacred vows of marriage. Men who practice homosexuality. Now that phrase in our English actually translates two different words in the Greek language. One for the active part of that relationship and one for the passive part. Now, some push back on that and say, no, 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 what he's talking about is men being inappropriate with boys. Well, the difficulty with that is there's a word in the Greek language for that very activity, and he doesn't use it here. He uses a compound word made up of two words from the Septuagint translation of two places in Leviticus. One word is men, one, the other word is is bed. Now I am being vague for little ears, but the Greek is not vague. It's not fuzzy. 
it's not hazy. But going on, there are thieves. Those who take for themselves at the expense of others. There's the greedy. Greed is, is the motivation for theft, and it's often the motivation for lawsuits. There are revilers, those who love to degrade others and insult others and rip down others. And there are swindlers, those who extort money, put pressure on others in order to get money out of them. That's quite a list, isn't it? Think about that list. Think about how hefty this list actually is. And then I want you to answer this. Would you put filing a lawsuit in with those other things? Would you put just getting a little payback in that category with the sexually immoral, with thieves, with swindlers? I don't think we would. Not naturally, but you know who does? Paul. The Lord does. We see, we tend to focus on some sins while minimizing others, and yet Paul clearly says they all lead to destruction. All of them forfeit the kingdom of heaven. Both the sins that are private, and you think, why are you even bugging me about this? This doesn't even bother anyone else. This is just me in my own private life. And sins that are public, and very clearly and obviously hurt others. All of them. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages of some sin or some particular kinds of sin. And if you're sitting there thinking about other people, the wages of your sin is death. That's what's due. How's that lawsuit look now? How's getting revenge look now? How's making them pay look now? How does worldly wisdom look now? You see, this kind of legal action fits within a category of payback where the world says if someone has wronged you, they deserve what they get from you. While Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. Don't respond with worldly wisdom. Instead, respond with godly wisdom. When we're wronged, godly wisdom doesn't take us to court. Godly wisdom takes us actually to the church. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The implication is you should go to the saints. Go to your brothers and sisters. Go to your elders. Go to your pastors. Go to the church. Find counsel and help there. Now, what is this wisdom? Well, you have to read more of the Bible to find that. But generally speaking, rather than revenge, it's reconciliation. Okay? It's actually voluntary restitution when there are financial things involved and physical things involved. And if things aren't working, then church discipline is, comes into play, which we talked some about last week. 
But you pray for help and you go to the one who wronged you and you lay out how it is that they wronged you objectively. And then when they repent, you forgive them. And if he wrongs you seven times a day and comes and says, I repent, you forgive him. And if he doesn't, then that's when the circle expands and you get more people to help bring reconciliation and restitution. And if you don't know where to start on any of this in your situation, if you have a situation like that, well, then get godly counsel from a friend, from an elder. But toward reconciliation, restitution. And if you're the one who's done wrong, confess your sin. Seek forgiveness. Make restitution. Read the account of Zacchaeus and go over and above in doing right to those to whom you've done wrong, even if it was unintentional. Now, I know that's pretty general as far as what godly wisdom is, and circumstances may seem quite complicated, but God says we take care of these things in the church. We don't go somewhere else. We go to godly wisdom. Why do we go to godly wisdom? Well, there are a few reasons in this text. The first is because of God's promise to you. Look at verses 2 to 4. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? You see, the promise of God to those who believe is that when Christ returns, we will reign with Christ. We will judge with Christ. The Bible says, tells us we'll judge the world. We're going to judge angels. And this is all rooted in Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days comes and judgment is for, given for the saints. And they possess the kingdom. But this little phrase in verse 2 and 3, do you not know, do you not know, that's Paul's way of saying, have you forgotten what's true? Have you forgotten what's been promised to you? Have you forgotten that you're going to judge the world and judge angels? And you're telling me you can't take care of this grievance? It would be, look, imagine one of our Supreme Court justices, all right? Just pick your favorite. Got them in your mind? All right, excellent. That Supreme Court justice, they sit on a court and they hear cases that shape the legal landscape of our nation. And they make these incredibly difficult decisions and they hear incredibly complex arguments and they do all of that. All right, you got that Supreme Court justice in your mind? Now he or she goes home and one child has broken another child's toy. And they say, I'm not sure I can handle this. I think we need to bring in a behavioral specialist or something. That's how silly it is. You may not feel like, well, I mean, you may actually put yourself in a position right now that I judge, I am judge of the world. No, 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 no. God is the judge of the world. You're just the little, we're the sub-judges, all right? But one day we will judge the world and judge angels, which is an incredibly fear-inducing idea to me. It's it's something that I have trouble wrapping my mind around, and yet God will give wisdom for that. Don't we believe that the same God who will give wisdom for that would give me wisdom as we work through a grievance here in the church? Even difficult ones? Even thorny ones? 
Also respond in godly wisdom because of God's work in you. Beginning in verse 9 again. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you're a Christian, you know what? You know what that list used, used to read? Such are some of you. That's how it used to read. You were a wrongdoer. You were a thief. You were a reviler. All of it. You were. That's it, like you just think back to before you met Jesus. The sign that hung over your head was such are some of you. But because of the work of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God, the grammar in that sentence has now changed. And it no longer says such are some of you, but such were. Such were some of you. You're not wrongdoers anymore, Corinthians. You're just, that is not... Not what Jesus died to make you. But you were washed. You know that great feeling at the end of a day? You've been out in the yard all day long, working hard, sweating, planting. I mean, we're all about to do it, right? In our yards, plant things and trim things and prune things and move things and all of the things. Or you've been under the hood of your car all day and you're just covered in grease. Or you've been at the gym, I don't know why, but you went to the gym and you worked out and you're just drenched from head to toe. And then you shower and that feeling that you have after a shower, you feel like a new person, don't you? Well, friend, when Jesus found you, you were playing in the mud of your own sin. You were swimming in it. You were building a life out of it. You thought there couldn't be anything better. You didn't even, couldn't even imagine what it'd be like to be clean. And yet he found you and he washed you. How? The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. But you were washed. But you were sanctified set apart. You know what that means? Justin and Amanda here, we're praying for them as they walk through this process of adoption. And there's going to come a day pretty soon when they're going to have to make a decision. And it's a heart-wrenching decision. And it's a decision that Susan and I made many years ago. They will look at pictures of little ones who need families, who have no families, and they will choose one. And when they do, do you know what that little girl will be? Sanctified. Set apart to belong to them, to be part of their family. No longer hopeless and having no family. Set apart 
to be Justin and Amanda's daughter. Now, friend, that's what God has done for us. He has taken us out of the orphanage of the world and brought us into his family, set us apart for himself. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. You stood in the courtroom with countless charges against you, all of them accurate, none of them trumped up, all of them deserving the death sentence. And God in mercy and in love called Jesus into the courtroom and he hurled your accusations at him. And he counted and he declared him guilty in your place. And he sentenced him to death in your place. And then Jesus went to the cross, and once he had died and rose again, back in that courtroom, God looked at you, and he banged his gavel, and he said, not guilty. That's being justified. All my sin laid on him. All his righteousness laid on me. You see, friends, the wisdom of the cross has washed you, sanctified you, justified you. How could you possibly go back to the world's wisdom? How could you go back to the wisdom that left you on a path of destruction? A path that is folly to the very God who sent Jesus to save you. See, it's because of God's work in you that you ought to respond to godly, with godly wisdom when you're wronged. And finally, this is God's path for you. Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You may think that Paul wants you to raise your hand and answer those questions, but he doesn't. Those aren't really questions. Those are statements. This is the way that you ought to go, he's saying. This is God's path for you, to suffer wrong, even to suffer wrong unjustly without getting payback. To be defrauded, even losing out. Because you say, well, that's fine. We'll go to the church, but if things don't work out at the church, if they won't pay back what they owe because the church tells them to, then I go to the court, right? Paul says, no, I know you lost, I know you lost out, but it's better to lose here in this situation than it is to win in court. Now you tell your friend that and you know what they might say? Paul is out of his ever-loving mind. What about my rights? You can't just do wrong to me and get away with it. I deserve to stand up for my rights. Why would he say this? Well, the answer comes from Jesus himself. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls 
those who follow him to live a distinct life, distinct from the unbelieving world and distinct from religious hypocrites, distinct in our spiritual disciplines, the way we give, the way we pray, distinct in our morality, not just to avoid murder but to avoid hate, not just to avoid adultery but also to avoid lust, a, distinct, a distinctly Christ-like way of living. But that also extends to when we are wronged. He says in Matthew 5, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. These are all unjust actions. The slap of offense, of insult. It's this backhanded slap is the picture. One of insult, degrading the other. Being sued by another so they can take what you have. Being forced by governmental authorities to X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Whatever it is, these are all unjust actions. No one's denying that, but Jesus is calling for a response that nobody expects. It's not a response that's natural, is it? It's not a response of payback. It's a response that doesn't defend or demand my rights. It's a response that's out of sync with the world and its wisdom. But it is Jesus' wisdom. This is the path we're called to walk. The path that God gives us. The path that honors the Lord. And do you know why? Because it's the path that Jesus himself walked. He was taken to court. And he was accused falsely and convicted wrongly and sentenced to death unjustly. And through that whole process, he does not defend his rights. He was oppressed and he was afflicted and he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before, before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The path that Jesus walked of choosing to suffer wrong took him to the cross where he paid for all of our wrongs. It's a path that took him to the grave. It's a path that led to resurrection and victory and glory for him. And it led to forgiveness and salvation and eternal life for us. You see, friend, Jesus could have taken you to court, found you guilty justly, made you pay because your sin has wronged him, because your sin has stolen from him the glory due his name. But when we wronged him, he chose the godly wisdom of reconciliation. He suffered loss that we might be saved.
The thing is, friend, is that you will show up in that courtroom one day. And guilt is there. The verdict of guilty is waiting. The question is, is that guilty verdict yours? Or have you come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that he has taken the verdict of guilty for you? No one will go to that courtroom without guilt assigned and paid for. But if you will come to Jesus, he will take your, take your sentence, your verdict, and you will be set free. And then as Christians, Jesus calls us to follow him on that same path, a path that will include loss and suffering, even unjust suffering, but it's a path that takes us to glory. You see, friend, all your accounts will be settled. All of the wrongs done to you will be made right. Evil will face justice. Every unjust act against you, every wrong done to you, will be fully dealt with. But the Bible says it's not meant to happen today. It happens on the last day. Paul's teaching us human courts don't have the kind of authority it takes to deal with it. But heaven's court does. You don't have the power to handle it. And you're not the one to right the wrongs. God is. The question we all must ask in, in, in response to this text is, do we believe that? Do we believe that God will truly settle the accounts, that he will right the wrongs. Do we believe that God's way is better than our way? Do we believe that he'll do it better and more fully than we ever could? Do, will we trust God to do it, even as Jesus entrusted himself to the Father? Will we refuse to repay? Will we refuse to pay back? Will we refuse to get revenge? Will we refuse to go to court? Will we refuse to file lawsuits? All of those things. Will we refuse to defend ourselves in these matters? If so, then when we're wronged, we'll respond with godly wisdom not worldly wisdom. Let's pray together. Our Father, the things that we have heard are too hard for us to accomplish on our own. They are too much for us to do in our strength. And so we are thankful that in our weakness you are strong and that your power is made perfect in our weakness and that we can follow our suffering Savior, when we are wronged by the power of your Spirit living in us, we can obey you. Father, I pray for those who don't know the Lord Jesus, that they would see that their sin has wronged you. And yet you have made provision in the Lord Jesus to punish their wrongs in Jesus and make them right with you. 
And I pray they would come to you by faith and seek that forgiveness, seek your mercy, seek your grace. And may we as your people be those who respond when wronged in ways that please and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.